We're in a series on the book of James, and we're in chapter 1 this morning, chapter 1, verse 22. And in your pew Bibles, that's uh, page 10,000 or 1,011. So if you don't have a Bible, it would be helpful for you to use the one in front because we just really just go through the text. And James, like, a, like most of the books of the Bible, but particularly James, is just helpful to, to offer just absolute clarity on some things. So it's helpful to have that sitting in your lap as we read through it. So James chapter 1, verse 22 through 27, and we're also going to read two verses from the Gospel of Mark. So if you would find that, Mark chapter 4, 18, and 19. It's part of the parable of the sower, which you'll recall. So James chapter 1, 22, Mark chapter 4, 18, and 19. Let's stand together as we read God's Word. Let's begin with Mark chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the Word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Now, turning to James chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, and for he looks at himself and then goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Uh, You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect on God's Word. There to James chapter 1, verse 22. Operation Bodyguard was one of the most elaborate deceptions in history. That was the the name of the uh, deceptive operation used in the spring of 1944, just prior to the invasion at Normandy, and it was named uh, that, um, and it was a number of different deceptions to, to... help the attention of the Germans to get away from the actual landing point of the invasion of uh, Europe. Uh, There were lots of things that happened in Operation Bodyguard, and it's very fascinating to just read about, but there were at least five different fake offensives that uh, the Allied forces set up. They actually rigged the Swedish stock market to make it look like the, the Swedes were excited about what was going to happen, so then that would make the German forces believe that they were entering in through Sweden. 
they actually uh, had blow-up tanks and other vehicles that they'd station at different places. So if you did any kind of reconnaissance, it looked like there was a mass of people gathering at one particular place. They created a, a fake battalion that was led by George Patton. They had spies and double agents, and then they sent out messages that were obviously uh, fake messages. They did all these things just in hope to distract and when you're at war, one of the things you have to be constantly aware of is this possibility of deception. It's not like the Germans didn't understand that some of the information, because it was conflicting, some of it was untrue. You always have to be able to distinguish between what's real and what's not real. And as followers of Christ, we have to be aware of deceptions. We have to be able to look at something and, and, and try to define whether that's real or is that a deception. Jesus says the same thing in Luke chapter 22. He says, watch out that you are not deceived. Many will come claiming, I am he. And many will come claiming, saying, the time is near. They don't follow them. Paul says this in Galatians 3, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who, who came in and cast a spell? You were moving in the right direction, but, but somebody came in and deceived you, and now you're moving in the wrong direction. And James is a, a pastor. He is the pastor of the very first church in the New Testament, the church in Jerusalem. And he understands that his congregation is involved in this spiritual warfare. We talked about this just earlier in the chapter. There's going to be trials and temptations. There's going to be all kinds of things that they're engaged in. And in the midst of these battles, he doesn't want his congregation or he doesn't want his soldiers falling for deception. And look at verse 22 and 26 where these words are mentioned. Verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. You see what's happening? James is, is warning not about an external deception. He's warning about an internal deception. He's saying that you could deceive your own heart. There could be a, an operation bodyguard going on within you that you could be fooling yourself. And he doesn't want his congregation to be fooled internally. So like a good pastor, he's trying to uncover uh, what you might easily deceive, we might be deceived on by ourselves. In the, in the Greek, the word deception is sometimes used as a mathematical term. It means to make a miscalculation. And James is saying, I don't want you to make a, a serious spiritual miscalculation. I, I, I want you to be a, a congregation that uh, makes the right choices. So he's coming alongside of his congregation. He understands they're involved in this spiritual warfare. He understands that there are external forces that could deceive, but there are also internal forces that could deceive. And, and I don't want my congregation to sit here and be self-deceived. So he comes alongside and he provides some instruction. Verse 22, he provides a diagnosis. He, he's going to diagnose the self-deception. Then in verse 25, he provides a prescription for the problem of deception. And then 
in the final verses, 26 and 27, he gives three tests or three indicators that you can use to see if you've had a spiritual miscalculation. See what's happening? He's going he's to give a definition to it. He's going to show it to you. And then he's going to say, if this is true of you, it's not going to necessarily be true of everybody, but if this is true of you, I want to give you a prescription. I want to give you an antidote to fight against this self-deception. And then if you just say, well, how do I know? How do I know if I'm being self-deceived? I mean, because when you're self-deceived, what's, what, what measure do you use? And he says, okay, I'll give you three tests. I'll give you three gauges. I'll give you these three indicators. And if you see one of these things working, then probably you're moving in the right direction. If if you say, I don't see that happening in my life, then you should take, take heed to yourself. First, the, the diagnosis, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. James is, is telling us there's a common deception, and the common deception is thinking that if you just hear the word, you're in a good place. If you're just here on Sunday morning, if you're just hearing the word, then you can walk out and say, yeah, you know, I'm doing my part. I, I, I must be in a good place. And he's saying that, that that's so easy to be deceived in that way. The, the picture here is a student. Imagine yourself a college student, and you're just auditing a class. I mean, I always used to love it when I was auditing classes. Why? Because all, the, all that was required was attendance. But I didn't have to actually participate. I didn't actually have to do anything. There were, there were no tests. There were no papers. And what James is saying is, he's looking at his congregation and says, I just don't want auditors. I don't want people who are coming thinking their attendance is all that's required. No, there's actually a, a doing. There are tests. There are oral reports. There are papers to give back. We're going to find out whether what you're hearing is actually having any impact, if it's making a difference in your activity. One commentator put it so well, saying, we can deceive ourselves by mistaking the part for the whole. You and I can deceive ourselves by mistaking the part for the whole. We can think, well, we heard, so that's the whole. And James is saying, that's not the whole, that's part. But the whole is you have to hear and then you have to do something. And of course, James isn't delivering a brand new sermon. He's borrowing a sermon. This is always encouraging to me as a pastor when I borrow other people's sermons. Well, not, not you know what I'm saying. But he's looking back and saying, I'm not, I'm not just making this up. I'm not here, James, the pastor of the very first church, and I'm giving you some new information. We can go to Jesus in Luke chapter 11. Blessed are those who hear the word and obey it. Paul says it similarly in Romans 2.13. It is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is also those who obey it. So these things are always working together. You've got to be a, a hearer and a doer. You've got to be a hearer and then you've got to have some action. You can't just be an, an auditor. You can't just come in and mistake. Hey, I come to church on every Sunday. I hear it. I turn on an occasional Christian radio station. I'm hearing it. But there's got to be an application to your hearing. That's the whole that James is talking about, not just the part. And like a good pastor 
uh, he gives an illustration, verse 23 and 24. It's like this. I mean, if you don't understand what I'm saying, imagine this. Imagine a person who comes and he looks at himself in the mirror and he looks intently, but then when he walks away, he just forgets what he looks like. So you walk by a mirror and you go, who's that? Who's that stranger? I don't recognize that person. And you think that's foolish if you've looked at yourself intently, whether you like what you've seen or not. When you go by a mirror, you go, yeah, I need to suck that in a little bit. I mean, you get some evaluation. You, you know it's you. You're not surprised by what you look at. But James is saying if, if, if you're coming in here just a hearer and not a doer, it's like you hear it, you look intently, but when you go out and you live your life on the street, it's like, I, it's, I have no connection. I don't have any application. I, I've just been in attendance, but I have no participation. So uh, my, my thought here is when, when we're thinking about it, we have to have both of these things uh, working together. He says it's, it's like you're somebody who forgets. You, you look intently, but then you forget. And when I got to this part, I, I thought, what, what causes this forgetting? You notice he's not saying, hey, you need to read the Bible. You need to hear it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you do hear it, but somewhere from the hearing to the application, in this process, you forget. And I, so I kept thinking, well, what, what happens from here to here? What causes this forgetting? And, of course, there are lots of ways to, to answer that, but that's where I picked up Mark chapter 4 and the parable of the seeds. I think Jesus is helping us say, you've received the word. Remember the parable of the seeds, these four different soils the, it lands in? It's the hard soil, and then it's the shallow soil, and then this third one in verse 18, it's this uh, uh, thorny soil. And so you, you do receive the word. You hear it. You actually begin to grow up, but then something happens that chokes off the word. It, 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 it helps you forget. And so I thought we would look at these three just briefly, and as we looked at them to ask yourself, is any of this happening to me? I hear it. But then when I go out to make application, in here, these things choke off that application. And Jesus lists three things that have that choking effect. First, worries of this life. I, I, I get up in the morning, I hear, I come to church on Sunday, I hear. But as soon as I leave, first thing that can start choking it off is the worries of this life. Do, do you wake up anxious? The worries of this life are is meant to be distractions of all kinds. It not, wouldn't necessarily mean a big anxiety. It could just be so many things. You, you wake up and immediately you're pulled in all kinds of different directions. 
Is your schedule so tight? Is your kid's schedule so tight? Is your desire to, to be in everything, your inability to say no, your, your fear that your kids are missing out, so you've got them in all kinds of activities that somehow when you get up, you hear it, you, you see it, and I think you really want it, but when you make this transfer out into your life, the, the worries, the anxieties, the busyness, the pressure, somehow it chokes it off and then you just run off. And you've, it's like you've forgotten. It's possible that your desire for those things, as good as you think they may be, is a terrible miscalculation. You may have made a terrible miscalculation by the number of things you're just involved in. Thinking it's a good thing but it's distracting and it's actually choking off the word from your life. Second thing he mentions, the deceitfulness of wealth. Do you have a hunger for things? I just got to have this one more thing. I don't need everything, but if I could just have this thing. And I just hunger for it. I, whenever I see it, I have a longing for it. I've got to have this thing. And if I could just buy it or I could get my income up, maybe you've done all that. It hasn't been satisfying. And now you, what you wake up with is just this debt load. I got all those things. They're killing me. And so as soon as I wake up, yeah, I see it. I read it. But man, I go out and it's just a dump truck of debt gets on my back. And because my inability to say no to the deceitfulness of wealth, now it's ringing the word out of my life. I can't go out and do any application because I'm just burdened by money or the lack of it. And finally, Jesus mentions this third thing that chokes off the word that that helps us forget or causes us to forget, and that is desires. Remember that we talked about this, the Greek word epithemia. It's an over-desire. It's not necessarily it's an evil thing. It's a good thing that's become a God thing. You have something, you have someone, you have some event in your life that is now dominating everything that you think about. And so as soon as you wake up, this is what comes to your mind. When you're just taking a shower, what comes to your mind? That's probably the thing that's dominating. When you're, when you're laying in bed, is there something that keeps coming to mind? And he's saying, do you have this over-desire for something or someone or some event to play out? And all of your energy goes to that. And so, yes, you do see the word, but when you go out to application, you just that just jumps in your mind, and now it fills up the whole screen, and it just chokes it out, and it's like you've forgotten So we have to be hearers and doers, and we have to examine ourselves and say, if I'm looking at the Bible, what is causing me to forget? Is it any one of those things in your life? Then in verse 25, James moves on. If He says, okay, if you you see yourself in verse 22, if you recognize yourself in this illustration, now I want to give a prescription. I want to provide that for you. And he says this, but the one who looks into the law, the perfect law, the law of liberty, and per-
perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, then he will be blessed. If, if you're forgetting, then what you need to do is to look into the law and you need to persevere. And so I read that and I think, okay, but how? Again, how do I persevere? I mean, if, I need, if I've been looking at it and I'm forgetting and he's saying, okay, don't forget, persevere, then I have this question, James, give me some help. How is it that you persevere? I, I'm looking, but I need to persevere. How, can you give me some help here? And, of course, he doesn't, and that's why I'm standing up here. No, just for clarity. He's, I think the key word here is persevering. And so you, you, you and I are having this same question. James, I think, would answer it very similarly. What are, what are some ways that you stay near to the word so you don't get out there and forget? And again, I could list ten, but I'll just list three common ones. And it's, they're not rocket science. First of all, you have to memorize and meditate on the Word of God. I mean, if you want to be like this tree that's planted by the stream of life-giving water, if you want to be bearing fruit in every season, Psalm 1, then you have to meditate on the Word of God day and night. You've got to have it in your mind. You've got to, you've got to stick it in there so that when you move out here, it's, it's also coming out of you. And that takes looking at it intently, meditating on it, and then memorizing it. So it's going through your head. It's not radio stations going through your head. It's not big problems going through your head. It's not just debt load going through your head. It's, it's the Word of God is running through your brain. And so I think that's one of the ways we persevere. In my men's journey group, we're reading through a book called Disciplines of a Godly Man, and it talks about a man named General William Harrison. General Harrison was one of the most decorated soldiers of World War II. He was the first American to enter into Belgium. He was the chief of staff in the United Nations during the Korean War. He was appointed by President Eisenhower to negotiate the terms of the end of the war. And he led one of the most demanding lives anyone could lead. But he made time every day to read parts of the Bible. And one of his associates said this, each of the great problems Harrison faced was informed by the scriptures. People marveled at his knowledge of the Bible and his ability to bring it to light in every area of his life. When I read that, there's a part of me that's motivated. I want to be like that. I mean, I'm not as busy as General Harrison was. But then I think there are probably people here who hear that and they say, memorize, meditate, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think somewhere they might be thinking, and you might be one of them, I just can't do that right now. You don't know my life. You don't know my situation. I, hey, I can, I can get to it later. And, and I would say if you're making some sort of excuse in your mind as to why you can't memorize Scripture, like, oh, I'm just not good at Scripture memory. I bet you're better at it than what you think. You know a lot of things that are in your memory. But it takes work to memorize Scripture. And my guess is you're not good at it really means I just don't want to work at it. And it's going to take work. 
And if you're not really willing to give that work, if you're, if you're always finding a way to give an excuse, then what I would say is you're making a serious miscalculation. You're deceiving yourself. So you've got to meditate on it. You've got to memorize it. You've got to take it with you. Secondly, you have to have some accountability. How do you persevere in the Word? How do you persevere and not forget? You have to have some accountability. Everybody's familiar with the Ecclesiastes 4 statement read at weddings pretty frequently. Two are better than one because they have a good return for the work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. One may be overpowered, but two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. If you're here and you're not tethered together with someone else or some other group, you're making a serious spiritual miscalculation. I mean, I really don't care what kind of quality of life you've had before or spiritual life. If you are not now connected with somebody or some group of people that is helping you and you're helping them, you're making a serious miscalculation. You cannot do it on your own. And so you need to ask yourself, if, if I'm supposed to persevere, one of the things that's going to help me is who is helping me? And you should be able to identify, yeah, this, these, this is the guy, group of guys that is helping me. This is the group of women that is helping me. This is my journey group, my small group. And if you're not in one of those, if you're not in some sort of group like that, then, then you're making a serious spiritual miscalculation. You could be deceiving yourself. And I would encourage you to ask me or ask somebody here at the church, how, how do I get involved? I don't want to be left out on my own because I'll fall away. The third way that I thought of that helps you uh, persevere is what I call the, and this isn't new, the use it or lose it principle. That just the way Harrison did it. You know, he, he read the word, but he, he used it as soon as he got out the door. It was a, a way to use it. You know this if you teach foreign language, if you've taught somebody a musical skill. You, they come, they hear what you're saying, they may practice in front of you, but what do you say to the person as they leave? You gotta go use that. You gotta, you gotta put that in action. You can't just come to this one 30 minute session on Spanish and think, well, I got it down. Now you, you gotta start speaking Spanish. You gotta start using it in your everyday life. It's gotta be part of your brain. It's, it's very similar to, to muscles. You know this. If you don't use your muscles, what happens? You lose your muscles. And you can go out and do some activity and go, oh, I didn't realize I had that muscle. Because you just haven't used it. I remember several years ago I went snow skiing. I got invited to be a speaker at this terrible conference in Aspen, Colorado in December. And I said, well, I mean, somebody's got to step up to the plate. I'll volunteer. And so this guy flew me out and I took Morgan with me. And so we're going to have three days of skiing in Aspen. And so she'd been doing ballet like nine days out of the week. I had been working on how to adjust my chair for the most comfortable position. And so we get out to Colorado, and, you know, I've, I've been snow skiing here, been a long time ago, but in Colorado, like, you get to the top, and it's a week before you get back down to the bottom. And so for the whole time, you're, you're like this. You're, you know, you're real tense the whole time. And so we do this the whole first day, and then we get back to our hotel room, and we're like, oh, 
I lay down and she lays down. We're just both dead tired. And in the morning, she's bouncing up on her bed. Let's go ski. And I'm like, honey, I'm paralyzed. <laughs> I mean, I, I can maybe move my eyelids today. Why? I didn't use these muscles. I didn't even know I had these muscles. But you see what happens? Here, here's what can happen. You can get in this very critical spot with somebody. And you can deliver God's Word into their life right at that moment. But you're paralyzed. You don't have it in your head. You don't have anybody that's holding you accountable. You haven't used it. So right when your neighbor, right when your friend, right when your coworker, right when your family comes in and you go, I, I can't move. I'm, I'm paralyzed. I haven't done what it's taken to deliver the Word of God to this person right now. And you say, man, I made a, a terrible spiritual miscalculation. I, I could have been the delivery system for God at this point, but I don't have it. I've looked at it, but I've forgotten it. So you have to, you have to check and see if you've been deceived. You have to ask yourself how to persevere. And finally, James, in these final two verses, gives these three tests. How would I know? How, what kind of gauge would I hook myself up to to see if I've, I've made a spiritual miscalculation? And we won't take a great deal of time on these three because they're really unpacked in greater detail later in the book. So let's just look at the three. I just want you to notice that all three of them really have an impact on your lifestyle. So just in a general principle, if your relationship, your, your salvation hasn't affected your lifestyle, then you don't really have what the Bible calls salvation. Because it's going to affect how you live your life. If it's not affecting that, then you need to ask yourself, what do you have? Well, the first gauge here, verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but, de but deceives his heart, the person's religion is worthless. I mean, you get the idea that if you were in James's church, he's like the blunt kind of preacher. Yeah, if you have that, well, that, that's worthless. Oh, let's uh, try to stick the knife in a little slower next time, James. He's just saying, look, if you can exercise self-control over your tongue, then that's a pretty good indicator that you, you don't have anything that's worth having. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty clear indicator. And James obviously very uh, focused in on this idea of what we say back in uh, verse 19, we've got to be slow to speak. And in the beginnings of chapter 3, spend several verses on uh, the tongue. Because what comes out of your mouth exposes a condition of your heart. You know this from Jesus' words in Luke 6. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. The evil man brings evil things out of the things evil things stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. So one gauge is what's coming out of your mouth. It's telling you something about the condition of your soul. One study says that 
the average person speaks 15,000 words in a day. Now, I'm sure there's some that are down around six or seven, and I've certainly met people up around 25 or 30, I bet. But if you just spoke 15,000 words a day, if you were an average, that's a 50-page book. And so you could just go back at the end of your day and say, you know, let me re reread my book. I just delivered a 50-page book today. What, what's been coming out of my mouth? And what does your book say about what you believe? That's one of the gauges that James uses. The second gauge, he says here, is religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this. Well, this is, okay, this is what is pure and undefiled. He's going to give it to you as clearly as he can. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Again, one of the commentators says, James strikes a direct blow here to ministry by proxy or ministry by gifts of money, mere gifts of money. Pure and undefiled religion demands personal contact with the world's sorrow. See, you have to make personal contact. You, you have to make personal contact with a widow and an orphan and you know when you do immediately, that's going to be time-consuming. You're not going to come and visit the widow and orphan and give a quick fix. You can't just replace a dad or a husband. It's going to take energy. It's going to take resources to do that. And my question is, why would James pick this particular gauge to help you understand, if you really understand the gospel, why would he say you can tell if you really get the gospel, if you're wor working with, if you have personal contact with widows and orphans, why would he use that? And you know the answer. Because we're all widows and orphans. Sin has separated us from our father. Sin has separated us from our husband. And in order to change the dynamic, in order to change the trajectory of our future, what did God do? He didn't send down instructions. He didn't send down money. He came down. And he said, I, you know what? I'm going to make personal contact with you. You're an orphan. You're a widow. And I'm going to come down and make personal contact. And so when you come down, so to speak, and you get involved... You're just saying, I understand. The God of creation has come down and done the same to me. And he's saying that's one clear gauge you can use to know whether your, your faith is real, if you're really just a hearer or a hearer and a doer. And finally, you have to keep yourself unstained from the world. You must uh, notice the word just keep yourself. This is... This is you. You've got to be on guard. You're never going to drift into holiness. You have to make every effort. And I think sometimes we think, well, grace doesn't go with me keeping on guard. Grace is, okay, I'm forgiven. But the grace and the guarding must go together. If you've experienced the grace of God, then you're being charged to guard as well. Grace doesn't eliminate the guarding. So this is the most practical sermon. 
Are, are you just auditing? You're here auditing today. I come, I hear, but when I leave, you know, I've got my radio station on, got my debt load, got my worries, and I'm moving on. See you next week. It's possible. Possible that you're just deceiving yourself. Hey, I read it. I read it every morning. But do you have participation? Do you have application? Are you taking it with you? How would you know? Well, you can use these gauge. What? What's coming out of my mouth? Who am I serving? If you came and saw my life, is it? am I guarding my life or not? Let's just pray that we would be open to what God would say to us through these words. Let's pray together. Lord, James is just so, so practical. And so I thank you that you have challenged us in these few minutes here from his word and really your word. And we know that to some degree all of us are self-deceived. And so you've given us these very clear gauges to look at and and examine ourselves. And so I pray, Lord, for everyone here that uh, thinks that they could earn their way into favor, they would understand grace, the grace of the gospel. But for many of us here who have experienced that grace, we would ask ourselves, are, are we guarding ourselves? Are we guarding our mouths? Are we making personal contact? Are we really participating? Are we able to bring to bear your word at just a particular time or are we paralyzed because we just don't use it? Help us to see ourselves in ways that we can. In Jesus' name, amen.